Welcome to the Legacy of John Williams podcast. I'm your host, Maurizio Caschetto, and this is a new installment of LA Studio Legends, a series of in-depth talks with legendary Los Angeles studio musicians who performed on film scores, including many by John Williams. My guest today is trumpet master Malcolm McNabb. Michael McNabb is one of the true legends among studio musicians in Los Angeles and one of the greatest trumpeteers in the world. Thanks to his works on literally thousands of film and television soundtracks, his playing became familiar to hundreds of millions of people who have never heard his name. His work as a studio musician is the stuff of legend, and his list of credits reads like Hollywood's history of the last 45 years. has been the first trumpet chair for John Williams on 46 scores recorded in Hollywood for almost 40 years, starting with the score for The Man Who Loved Cat Dancing. performing both virtuoso and lyrical trumpet parts in some of John Williams's most famous film scores, including The Towering Inferno, Jaws, E.T., Jurassic Park, and three Indiana Jones films. In addition to his work for John Williams, Malcolm McNabb has performed on hundreds of films and can be heard playing solo trumpet on classic scores including Glory by James Horner and Dances with Wolves by John Barry. He has been first trumpet for many other great composers, 
including Jerry Goldsmith, with whom he also performed solo trumpet on LA Confidential and The Last Castle. In this conversation, Malcolm talks about his incredible life journey and his career as a studio musician performing on many John Williams schools, including his work for Jaws, Jurassic Park and Indiana Jones films. He also recollects his work for Jerry Goldsmith, his first album as a soloist performing Tchaikovsky's Violin Concerto on trumpet and the many aspects of the studio musician's life. Very glad to introduce to our audience, Mr. Malcolm McNabb. Thank you, Malcolm, for being here with me on the Legacy of John Williams podcast. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. First thing, before you know, starting diving into your incredible, amazing career as a studio musician, I'd like to start our conversation like I do with all my guests to talk about uh, your musical background and formation. So, uh, you grew up in Southern California yes. and started playing at a very young age uh, with your father as a teacher, right? Well, my father had a trumpet laying around the house. He really wasn't a trumpet player, but when he was in the army, he bought a trumpet for $10. Um, the guy shipped out and he only paid him a down payment of $2. So it's a $2 trumpet, which uh, that's what's <laughs> laying around the house. So, you know, when I go to school in the old days, they had uh, a lot of music in the school. So elementary school had music and the the teacher from the junior high would come over and listen to people and offer instruments and see what their uh, which one works for them if they want but i already had that trumpet when i saw that i said oh that looks like fun wow so that's how it started my dad could play a couple tunes around the house and uh i thought hey i'd like to try that so that's how it started but once i got serious he said wait a minute no one makes a living playing the trumpet you got to be a projectionist a movie projectionist like me and so that's what i started doing showing movies and so i actually when I, uh, years later, you know, when I was able to make my way, uh, I bought him his first and only new car he had in his life. I got him a new Cadillac, drove it in, and he said, what are you buying junk like this? I says, here's the keys. It's your junk now. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I proved him wrong. I mean, that, but again, I was just, I love music, and I still do, and I still play. So I started playing in 1952, and here at, at 77 years old, I'm still playing 68 years. I'm surprised I lasted as long as I did, 72 till 2015. Uh, and then, you know, and most of the orchestra that I was with, even on ET, like in 81, um, was gone.
yeah, you, you've already touched upon some very interesting points, but uh, to step back a little bit earlier, uh, before becoming an established studio musician, you had a career as a classical musician. So you were first trumpet in Pasadena, right? Well, at, yeah, 14 years old, passing a symphony, but also was playing in bands. And I had a background of all kinds of playing uh, by the time the studios hit me, but I never thought anything about it until that happened. And I got sort of when I was 20, I think about 27, I got my foot in the door at Universal because there was a lot of TV they had then, and I was doing a lot of TV shows. But people don't know what episode TV is anymore in those days. Um, each each show, like Murder She Wrote, and those things, would every week there was a a new show and a different and a, a different score with an orchestra of maybe thirty to forty people every every week on every score. And people don't even know about that era. We you know we still make a little bit of residual, maybe fifteen cents uh, for an episode of Hawaii Five O or something like that. You know, but anyway, that's that's how it started. And then the features, you know, came later. So when you were you basically returned to LA to become a session musician. Did you specifically want to join the, the, the environment of the, of the studio musicians working in films and television, or you were just looking around for, for gigs or jobs? It, was, kinds it was just a gig. You know, you have to, you have to uh, exist. You need money. But at the same time, I was playing. I was first trumpet in the Los Angeles Chamber Orchestra with Neville Mariner uh, in the early 70s. I did recordings with them. Uh, I was in the, uh, the California Chamber Symphony um, with uh, Henry Timianka. Uh, and that was, we went to, we went to, uh, to uh, Hong Kong with that orchestra and performed. I was a soloist there. Um, and so, you know, I have a big classical background and a, like a big man and a, and a jazz background too, because I was with Frank Zappa for many years. I was on the road with Frank Zappa from probably about 1972. Uh, and at the end of it, we, we were still touring and uh, run outs and, and like maybe four years later, but yeah. And he recorded, he wrote the bebop tango. If you ever heard the, that piece, that's, yes. he, he wrote that for me. That's, wow. it was, I have the music I can show you. It says the Malcolm McNabb is what it, and I went up to Frank's house after midnight and that's usually when you could talk to him. And so, uh, he says, hey, do you think you can play this? And I said, ooh, oh, I don't know. And th <laughs> then after I learned it, he said, can you play that and dance at the same time? I said, I got to draw the line there. <laughs> but he was an amazing creative guy and a good friend of mine. Uh, I mean, and my and my ex-wife, she, she was also with the orchestra. We traveled you know, with them. Yeah, he, he was an amazing musician. Yeah. I mean, quite, quite. Oh, he real. was so creative. So, yeah. so unbelievably creative. Uh, uh, and demanding in a lot of ways, you know, um, but, you know, it was it was a good thing for me because it really made me stretch out. And then he finally found his as he got sick and he really died in his early 50s from say, cancer. And that's that was really too bad. But he had that. He finally found uh, uh, Boulez's uh, group, the uh, Ensemble Contemporain in, in Paris. Yeah. Those are the young, great players that could play his music. And he was so happy. He was sick and dying. But. At that time, he was able to go there and have hear his music, you know, the way he wanted to play. But he always he even quoted me. You can hear that on the on the uh, YouTube if you go find the one. Uh, Bruce Fowler's in there and the Fowler brothers. But he Fowler comes in and he says, you know, I, I went, I was coming to rehearsal with Frank. He says, and I he said I heard this trumpet player named Malcolm. He says, you know, he's the only one that can play my music correctly. <laughs> and so I think, hey, thank you. I want to buy that line. I'll use that. <laughs> I'll use it in my biography. <laughs> the cowbell as a symbol of unbridled passion, ladies and gentlemen.
lot of talented musicians with a strong classical background ended up choosing by choice or by necessity uh, a career as a studio musician. I mean, and many of them ended up performing in film and television scores. Uh, yeah. um, among them also, if we go back in time into 1940s and 50s, we have some incredible trumpeters like Yuan Raisi, who was the first chair of trumpet at yeah. MGM in the 1950s oh, and 60s. I, he was my best friend. I got it. I, I miss him so much. I was just thinking about him yesterday. And he was an amazing musician. I mean, was that generation of trumpeters a benchmark or even an inspiration? No, he was, for... he was up far and above of everyone else. And a spirit, the most spiritual person I've ever met in my life. Uh, and he would things, say things like reverence, you know, when his, to his students, he said the reverence. But when you hear Chinatown, for instance, and of course, yeah. I, played that, I played that with Jerry before in concert and stuff. They had to play that. And, you know, he did that score and he brought Yuan was at the end of his career. He really didn't want to do any solo things, but they, all the parts were in his book. And and he played it. And when I hear that movie, every time I hear his soul coming through in the sound. And I knew the man. I traveled with my. We, we drove to Arizona one time for a week and spent a week driving around and visiting people. And he's the most incredible man. Uh, he touches uh, everyone he ever meets. And people had met him one day. They later wrote in eulogies. You know, I'll never forget this man. And just I only met him once, and he's so incredibly beautiful. His soul just comes right out to you. <laughs> So anyway, he he was the, he's the best. but so there's many many and it's a big parade and most of them are, are gone that I started with and probably all of them you know and uh, here I am at that age so <laughs> I'm doing fine I'm doing pretty good for a 77 year old. You started playing uh, for film industry in the early 1970s, right? Well, yeah, and but mostly it was TV. I got okay. doing the Y five those and the on the sh all the shows at Universal and everything. But um, in '73, that's when I met Steven Spielberg. Okay. Uh, on Sugarland Express, because he he started at Universal, they let him do a one show, and this was the second one he did for them, and then Jaws in '75. Now here's an interesting thing about Jaws. In 1975, we did several Jaws pictures, but we had the town band, you know, in other words, that weekend on the island with the shark scare and everything like that. 
Yeah. They had to have the uh, atmosphere of music. So they, we needed like the people warming up on instruments. Obviously, they go to get them out of the, the uh, attic of their house, and they try to get the rusty. They don't play all the time. Yeah. So guess who this little band was that was playing at, at Universal? And this John was playing the trombone. <laughs> Steven Spielberg was playing his clarinet because he was a clarinet player. He grew up playing clarinet. And Graham Young and myself on trumpet. So if you heard that <laughs> guys warming up in the background and on that weekend in, in the island, um, that's us. <laughs> Chief Brody. What you got there? Listen, we had a shark attack at South Beach this morning, man. Fatal. I've got a batten down the beach. Okay, Albert. Come on, you go. That's fantastic. I mean, are there any pictures about it or recordings? <laughs> no pictures of that session. No, 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 not at all. But I, I got tons of pictures over the years of just about everybody. The very first experiences you did with John, uh, what were your first impression working with him? I mean, what, was Sugarland Express your first work with him? No. The very first one I did was uh, The Man Who Loved Cat Dancing, 1973. <laughs> Was a replacement score for yes. uh, Michelle Legrand, I think it was. It was Michelle, exactly. Yeah. And, I, and I did his, his, all of his music has such an earmark on it. You could tell his style all the time, you know. But he was, he's a great composer. But then again, that's when that happened. And uh, so I went over there to replace a trumpet player that was having a little trouble on some stuff. Okay. So we're both on that faint first score. So in 1973, I did the, uh, these lyrical solos that are in The Man Who Loved Cat Dancing. And that's when it started. Then I did The Paper Chase. Then the Sugarland Express, then then Earthquake, then Towering Inferno, Iger Sanction, Jaws, Midway, Black Sunday, Close Encounters. Now we're up to about the, almost 1980. The Fury, Jaws, Jaws two in 1941.
quantity of work you did with John, and so it's amazing. And do you remember your, you know, what your your first impression of him as a musician? You know, well, my, the first thing that comes out is he was a good conductor, great conductor, because most con composers don't are not really very good conductors. Like in in Britain, in the UK, the usually uh, the composers in the booth listening to the to the whole mix, and they have conductors that conduct. And so they've well, that really wasn't in place here. So most conductors they get lost in their music and and they don't have good beats, you know, and, and not good time and whatever. But John was always so prepared, and that's the first thing I noticed about him. And the music, of course, was gorgeous, you know. Uh, he and he even adapted in the uh, 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 the Paper Chase the the Telemann Concerto for three trumpets. Uh, and we did that, and you can hear it. And actually, when he comes out of the law classroom, you know, and this guy's on the right answer for his exam. And this, it breaks into this broke thing with trumpets. Incredible. So a couple over the years, he's adapted a few things, but the only one he's ever featured me on since he thought I was not a soloist, uh, I was the lead guy, the way they call it, grunt, you know, the guy that does hard, all the hard work over and yes. over, over. It's just like, you know, it was exhausting because I, I was, I did play solos, and the only one he really, he only featured me on one picture where I was a soloist, and that was Stanley and Iris. He had the Janet Ferguson, the flutist from the symphony, yeah. and he had a clarinetist from the L.A. Symphony. And he had me that I've really never put me in a solo role before. And it's just a small group. Going back to the, to the 70s, I mean, uh, back then, a lot of jazz and pop influence scores were, were still the norm in the early right. 70s. And even though some composers continued to write orchestral scores, John Williams was writing very diverse type of scores in uh, yes. those years. Well, 1941, remember 1941, he had a big band, the dance scenes, you know. We played all that, too, you know. That was a great, we had Louis Belson on drums and... 
you know, it was it was a great, great band. So, I mean, yeah, the people that that's the unique thing about studio musicians. They know all things. They can play. They play the music that's on the radio. They play mariachi music. They play opera. Whatever's in the background is usually recorded right right on the session, at, usually at the end of it. And, you know, I've, I've been the only one left standing a lot of times. And then they say, oh, you're just this one jazzing. I said, well, I'm not really <laughs> your best jazz player, but, but okay, you have to do it. You, you have to learn. You learn yeah. from the people you sit next to, you know, because people were a lot older than me. They played with, you know, the Gene Krupa's band and, Lou, and Louis' band and all these stuff. So the musicians were, you know, I was, it was rubbing off, you know, and I listened to them. They were on either side of me, and I, wow, that's where you learn. Jaws came out, I mean, uh, that was what probably put John on the map as a big name, yeah. very big name. I think so, so. And, and you performed first trumpet on Jaws? Yes. There is some wonderful trumpet writing in that score. Jaws 2. There's a beautiful moment in Jaws 2 where there's a, an absolutely gorgeous trumpet solo. I love that.
I, I played first on everything, all those pictures. I would say most of them, unless it was something specialized, maybe Space Camp was an obscure thing, 1986. And that was Warren Looning was actually playing first on that one. But, but mostly I played the, the lead the lead chair in on most movies all the way to um, War Horse. And that was the last movie for me and Tim Morrison. Yeah, he, he was another of his favorites, I think, in the trumpet. Well, session. actually, see, I was the guy, but then he went to the Boston Pops and he yeah. met him there and really, really got to like him. And so he invited him to come out to Hollywood. And so... Even though, again, it sort of worked. It's funny. I don't know if John would even remember this, but, you know, um, <laughs> I didn't get called. Uh, Tim Morrison was called for the, for, for the first chair. You know, I said, am I, am I in the section or what? No, you're in the section. I said, okay, I, I got to do goodbye. I'm, I'm no. Then he would call me at home, John. I don't know. He says, man, at different times I get different ideas, and sometimes I like Warren, sometimes I like you. Sometimes I said, John, I'm, I'll always be there. If you want me, I'll be there. But I'm, I, I, after you've been in the first chair, you don't, if you're, unless you're really not doing too well, you don't want to have to move down. Why, why should I? I mean, yep. brass are very prominent in a lot of the scores, you know, Indiana Jones, Jurassic Park. The incredible talent as a sight readers of you Hollywood studio musician is, of course, well-renowned. So really, you can play anything that is put in front of you. But anyway, do you remember any particularly challenging parts in any John Williams scores over the years? Something that really was tough and difficult? All of, all of them, especially the chase scenes and like Indiana Jones and that stuff like that, you know. Um, these chase cues, they're, they're exhausting because there's just so much playing. And, uh, you know, if you do a couple takes, that's one thing. But if you do 20 takes... I mean, how does he communicate uh, his vision to the musicians when he's on the recording stage? Uh, are there any specific playing techniques he adds uh, no, in such cases? He's very poised and, and I say, let's do this again. And he'll say specific things to people and stuff like that. But it's, he doesn't waste words or anything.
You were talking about Patty and Maloney and stuff like that. You know, far and away, I was there. As a matter of fact, before we, John went to do this benefit concert for the Tucson Symphony because Lionel Newman's daughter is actually the, the manager of the orchestra, the, the head of the society and everything like that. So he took me down. He couldn't get Tim Morrison out of the Boston Symphony to do JFK. I mean, he was going to do the concert version of JFK. A lot of trumpet solos in it. So he needed someone. So I, I went anyway. And it, w- it was interesting because, you know, we, we rode in the, in the limousine together, went to a big party after that at, at Lionel's daughter's house. And, you know, I remember riding in the limousine with him from, from Ventana Canyon with he and his agent. So they're talking about different commissions he did. And I said, John, you know, well, he hadn't written any trumpet concertos, but I said, it would be great if you write a trumpet concerto sometime. And he grabbed his beard and he started stroking and he said, you know, Malcolm, you're just not a soloist. And I, I didn't mean a solo. For me, I thought, you know, the world needs a trumpet concerto from you. But no. Well, not a big deal. Okay, but it sort of went into me. And that's why I never recorded any solo stuff until I was 62 years old. Think about that. And, you know, it meant a lot because when John Williams talks, he's, you know, he's, he's, he's gold, you know. But, but uh, in the end, he, he wrote a trumpet concerto. Yeah. But he wrote it at the uh, for uh, Cleveland Orchestra because the personnel manager from Boston had gone there, and my friend um, Michael Sachs did the the concerto. Yeah, and Arturo, another friend of mine, Arturo Sandoval, actually recorded a version of that too. But you know, I never, I never did. But again, you know, when you put that in your this couple words in your mind, and you go, "You're just not a soloist." Okay, well, if he look who said it, <laughs> I'm not that. So I never went to try to do any solo recordings. Now I have. Okay, so maybe maybe you can try to 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 convince John to that maybe you can tackle also his trumpet concerto. I'm not going to bother. I'm not going to bother. <laughs> he's uh, he's a little older than I am, and you know he's he's got his life, and God bless him, he's fine, and I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm okay. You know, I know what I can do, and I I know what I've done, and people have called me crying when they listen to these concerto, the concerto I did. So, you know, that must have affected someone in a positive way. And, and I'd like to ask you about uh, how the section, the trumpet section usually is uh, um, built in, in John Williams scores. I mean, how many trumpets generally? Three, four, five? A lot of times four. The original Jurassic Park, there's four trumpets playing in unison on that, you know. Bum, bum. The big theme when the helicopter arrives on the island. Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he nailed it. It's, it's fantastic. are split usually uh, between the players. I mean, if you're playing a solo or being the principal leader, is that something that is up to John Williams in his case? Yeah, well, it's written in the score. There's an orchestrator too. So 
it might say just solo trumpet or it might say everyone's in unison and we use that we look we're aware of everyone's parts and how we work together um and yeah you I mean sometimes it's brutal as far as uh, uh tiredness you know goes. but you know like on jurassic park for instance there was four trumpets playing in unison but I, from the time Robert Duvall, Bob Duvall from the Los Angeles Philharmonic was the, was the first trumpet there for years. Then he retired from the symphony. He came back and that was my man right next to me for 10 years, the last 10 years of his life. It was wonderful because he, he was, I went to, I first went to the Hollywood Bowl to hear those things for the first time with him playing, you know, and he was a great, great player. So um, other than that, we had Chase Craig, another guy, and he's, uh, these are all, well, it's been over the years, so many people, uh, and Burnett Dillon, who's now up in, Oregon, but um, you know, he was the first trumpet in the, the, in the Pacific Symphony, the Orange County Orchestra and stuff like that. So uh, we always had really good players, you know, and when I originally started and we did uh, the earliest pictures, you know, a lot of times it was Graham Young and uh, also Joe Burnett, who was a jazz player, who actually worked with John when he was playing, you know. John played a lot of, he did a lot of jazz things. If you've heard, heard the My Fair Lady score with Jack Sheldon and those people, yeah. Uh, so. That he, he went way back with him. So he was the third trumpet, but not at all a legit player. So on the symphonic things, it was it was a little bit challenging, you know, to get the right concept and everything. But um, there were just a lot of great players, and I learned from all of them, whether it's what not to do or what to do. You know what I mean? You notice things happening, and you start thinking in terms of, you know, what works and what doesn't work, and you can hear it in other people next to you playing something. And you can hear it, they're on their way to a, maybe a disaster. <laughs> you know, the, they left the wrong part of the note or something. Because, you know, you know, you, and you're, the more you study those things, what's good and what's bad, then it helps you. It really helps you think about what you're doing, you know. John was a session musician himself back in right. the 1950s, mm -hmm. you know, playing under Alfred Newman and Bernard Herrmann and Franz Waxman and all the greats who would later became, you know, of his, his role models for him, as, as he That's said right. exactly. several times. His father was a session percussionist. Yeah. And no then, much. and yes, and also his brothers ended up being studio musicians. And, you know, yeah. Don, Don well. So yeah. probably, do you think uh, uh, he had some kind of the mindset of the studio musician that could probably bring him closer to 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 the people who were sure. working with him absolutely because he was playing at fox and then he became an orchestrator and then he started doing tv and that it all started there really lionel newman was probably a big part of it and alfred newman 
you know, the, all the guys, the Fox, the Newman family that was at Fox, they had a lot to do with it. Um, and, you know, I mean, he did, I probably caught up with, it was at least maybe a, as much as 10 years. His first scores were before I ever was even there, like 10 years of before or something, because he started doing all stuff. But anyway, it resulted in, he was a brilliant uh, writer, a brilliant musician, really. And prepared. That's what's unique about him. You know, he he always knew he was not, nothing about the tempos or wrong conducting or anything like that. Everything was prepared and it was everything you needed was right there. He was a great conductor, but he told us when we went to Boston Pops, you know, I'm taking lessons, conducting lessons, because I haven't done concerti and stuff like that, because you have to know how to follow a soloist. And, and but of course, he, as brilliant as he is, he adapted to anything, you know. Yeah, he seems very humble about the, you know. Yes, you know, even, no. even though he's very successful and very you know appreciated. Well, he's Irish, really. Um, yeah, see, it's Towner, the middle name. That's the Irish name. Okay. Okay. Yeah, he's Irish like I am, but I actually have my Irish citizenship. My mom's born there. I have a passport for Ireland and all that stuff, you know. But uh, again, when Patty Maloney came and then said, you know, I when he was writing that music, we were in uh, Arizona together. Uh -huh. You know, he was in the next room. Yeah, but he had a piano in his room. And then we did then we did the music to it. And I read what fun when we got to the sessions, every 10 minute break, they were improvising, you know, the, the chieftains, they were going crazy. And then we had them sitting up with us. There were also uh, the uh, um, flute players and uh, other chromatic bagpipe. And so that those guys were there, all of them, the, the greatest. I knew them because I used to listen to the records and everything like that. And uh, uh, they were among us. They were sitting in a, with us and right over here, you know, there were, there were the whistle players and stuff. It was just a really kick. You know, every session was a party. I, I mean, and every, uh, every 10 minute break, it was just entertaining. You know, they were, they were playing all the tunes, you know, it was really neat. Yeah, it's an amazing score in my book because I think that the music is fabulous. I mean, there's a very, uh, you know, authentic Irish character, but As, as the story goes on, when the, the, the character arrives in America, the music suddenly becomes more Western-like. And there's yes. these beautiful uh, race scenes with the horses when they, they yeah, oh, yeah, Tom Cruise yeah. and the, Nicole Kidman go grabbing the land. This is this I'm grabbing, yeah. absolutely beautiful, uh, majestic piece accompanying the ride. And it's, it's, yeah. it's beautiful. No, it's, I mean. That's a great story. I like that a lot.
Also, another school where there is a lot of tough trumpet writing that I saw that you performed on is uh, Hook. That is a score. I mean, do you have any specific memory about Hook? <laughs> yeah, it was hard. It was hard. A lot of playing. All those, all, all the adventure cues, you know, with the big chase cues or whatever. There's just a lot to play. And and like I said, you, you know, instead of like just two or three takes, it would go on and on and on. And that's, that's brutal. So, I mean, this is what I did. I learned to do that and uh, because of the teachers I've had, you know, I can, I can play all styles and, and get strong enough. But the thing is for most, most people, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's brutal, you know, because, uh, and that's why I was sitting in the first year. I was, I was making the good money, but at, at the same time, it was hard. It wasn't easy. It was like Hook, and there was a couple of movies like that, you know, that where the, most of the cues were real bombastic. Another one I was thinking about is it's different kind of score, but lots of tough trumpet writing is uh, War of the Wars. Another one st yeah. still by Steven Spielberg. There is some crazy, more like Stravinsky, you know, very, very challenging, I guess, for the trumpets. Uh, yeah, it was, uh, that was 2005, then yeah. Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull, then Tintin, and then War Horse was our last mm -hmm. at that point, yeah. But yeah, a War of the Worlds. I don't remember anything specific about it except that it was, you know, when the when the uh, chips were down and it was an important, big, strong cue. It was always a lot of work.
another thing, you know, every musician I've talked with uh, said that John is very respectful and appreciative of the people and their artistry. And um, I mean, how much important for him is to create a certain atmosphere of music making when he's recording on the stage? I mean, he has to take care about, you know, of course, the the needs of the movie and taking care of the producer and the director and so on. But how much important is to communicate to the orchestra that you are also making music and not just you know doing a gig? Well, he's he unlike a lot of other composers that uh, that try to conduct their own music. He's he it's in his in other words the way he conducts. He's aware of it, and a lot of it comes just from his presence. What what the way he's doing it, you know, not a lot of words, but you know, good conducting. What you need to see as a musician, you know, uh, other than that, I don't know. He didn't, he didn't talk too much about things, you know, um, except that sometimes like a concert master would be over standing up by the podium, but actually talking about Boeing's with the celli and the, and the viola and stuff like that. And then finally, I remember John saying, if you don't mind, I'll rehearse the orchestra, <laughs> you know, something like that, you know, um, uh, just a couple of times on that, but you know, um, there were many, many, con he went through concert masters like, like he probably would go through first trumpets, but he didn't. I, I was just one of the lucky ones, I guess. There are not so many people who, you know, endured as long as you in first chair positions. I mean, I think that there are just, just a few, I think, in, in well, all the sections. I, I could name my life story about, you know, waiting for the other shoe to drop. <laughs> so you know I, I think i was there for a lot when they i had a party given to me uh, you know it was a big deal and he came and spoke there were other arturo sandoval came and spoke people like that but you know he was very nice he, he did a speech but he just was saying you know that you really your your sound has been around the world you know and everyone's heard it and, and it was to me i still was sort of surprised when I'd go to Dublin or something like that and sit in a pub with some guys and they were the trumpet players started talking to said and they're talking about all their stuff and I'm thinking I'm just sort of turn, tuning out and all of a sudden it says Malcolm oh yeah yeah what it says everybody here has been listening to your sound all these years and we model it after you and I'm going wow. <laughs> I mean you you are all incredible people who you know billions of people heard your, your playing billions of people have enjoyed your playing and billions of people have have been moved Music, it's just dots on the paper without a musician who plays it. And and that's the key for me. And, and that's why the great composers like John or Jerry Goldsmith or other greats, I mean, they are able to understand that that function, you know, of the musician, which is the conduit, the, the vehicle of, of, of the emotion yes. that yes. comes 
from the composer to the audience by you know the channel of the musician and that's yes, very absolutely. something very very key to understand and once you start to dig into the music and understand how it functions and understand why it makes me feel this way and you start to realize how he puts things together and and how people are important for him including you know you because you played for him for so many years and and basically you know every successful movie he did save for just a few he recorded outside of LA it's yeah. you playing <laughs> one of my biggest souls is in uh, the uh, Indiana Jones you know the one where he comes in you remember there's a fat boy scout that's got the bugle oh yeah riding in the back of a model T bouncing up and down and then he comes to the door and blows it in the young Indiana Jones and then there's uh, Sean Connery and they're trying to educate him on Greek and stuff like that yeah well that's that's I know who that is. That's me, actually. <laughs> Dad. Dad. Uh, it's important. And wait. Count to twenty. No, Dad, you listen. Junior. One, two, three, four. In Greek. Ena, theo, thea. Tessida, dente. this illuminate me <clears throat> I brought the sheriff I, I was told the day before you know bring some of you have any funky bugles or anything that's like you know that you have that you could would you know just he didn't tell me what it was but then they let the orchestra go in the morning and then in the afternoon it was just me way back in the trumpet section Stephen and John on the podium and we had to get it bad enough just to get it play bad enough but it's hard when you play get it bad enough to play good again after that <laughs> and that, and so you know it was uh we got it bad enough you know and i and what it is i put the horn in the, uh, the hand in the bell and i forced it you know over blew it and they liked it finally and then then steven says something like you know all that money your folks paid for lessons and then this is what you end up <laughs> <laughs> i've had many great conversations with steven that you know because he we get there very early at sony uh, he always wanted to record there, and and he has so many different cars. I would pick him out. I, if I was walking in and he saw me, he would call me over and we'd have conversations. A lot of them, like seven thirty eight in the morning over at Sony. John himself said that you know basically Stephen likes to attend recording session as if they are concerts. You know, <laughs> not only that, he had his movie camera, and then later the handy cam, the video. He's on every session now. The last time I saw Stephen was on uh, uh, the Bridge of Spies. That's the last session I ever did when I have a little solo in it with Tom Newman. Tom Newman stepped in because John was sick. And so there's Stephen with his camera by the brass section, and I and I go, you know, <laughs> to him, and he goes to me, and he's all guys. So we've known each other for a long, long time, and I, I, there are probably no other opportunities to even see him again or talk to him again. But we had a lot of conversations. He was really down to earth, and he's a great guy. That, and his kids, all the kids he's adopted, um, uh, multiracial can't family he has but uh you know he's a, he's a great guy his heart's in the right place really and 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 still schindler's list is the big the greatest work that he did i think it just means so much and i, I in that time since that i realized that i have my grandmother i never met she died in 1920 she was a jew from poland so i'm irish scottish polish american and now that doesn't even fit on the page, so I just forget it. I said, yeah, U.S. citizen, that's it. <laughs>
among the many greats you've worked with, uh, is there a composer to whom you feel particularly attached to, uh, not just on musical, but also on personal level? Um, Jerry Goldsmith. He, he loved me. He, he told everybody I was his soloist, you know. Jerry's music was unique and innovative and always different. Jerry had, he worked with synthesizer more. He was the one that, you know, he loved me and I loved him. Let's put it that way. I love Jerry because he was just fun. He had fun on sessions. He was, he could do a lot, but he was, it was more fun to be there. He understood the, the movie language and, and he was able to, to find the right music for any, any yeah. genre, any kind of scene. And he was, he was really most of the time writing better music uh, for, for movies that probably wouldn't deserve such music. But he, in his mind, it was just a, a level of excellence that he had. That was, I'll tell you, you know, yes, absolutely. You know that I did 42 scores with him on First Trumpet. You, you had some incredible solos in LA Confidential. It was probably my favorite. Yeah. Also, Last Castle. Those are three screen credits I got over over two thousand soundtracks. I only got a few, <laughs> and I have solos in so many of them. You know, it was just uh, for ten years. See, I we all got fired after the first Star Trek movie. They changed the orchestra completely, and um, so I wouldn't go for it. So I turned down Ger uh, Jerry for the next ten years. Hmm. From seventy-seven to eighty-seven, I did. I refused to do any of his pictures. Then I came back for Inner Space and. Uh, and he called me up to the podium. He says, I don't know what's, I said, I don't know what was going on, but it was, it was crazy times on Star Trek, the movie, the very first one. Yes. So we, he said, I said, it doesn't matter, Jerry. I'm with you because I want to be. And you know something, you're the best. Thank you. And that, the rest of the rest of his career, our careers, it was a love festival. He was a great. a lot of time to the teaching I mean or mentoring young trumpeteers during classes and clinics and I still do yeah how much important is for you uh, you know to pass on the torch to the extremely to the next extremely generation? absolutely there was someone there for me to help me you know usher you in and t teach you some things and give you some heads up uh, and you got to be that person too and I've, I've been very successful and I was blessed with, with a great career and everything like that and great teachers because when I went into that career I was prepared 
not everyone can just handle that. You know, every day it's something different, and you're you never see exactly what you're going to play beforehand. You don't know how many times you're going to play it or when you're going to play it. So as a trumpet player, it's hard to stay warmed up. You know, sometimes because so the teachers I've had were that were very important, very important uh, for me being prepared totally by the time I got in. And then the rest is just keep your mouth shut and watch everybody and let it come in. You know, so the first score with. Jerry, for instance, was the Wild Rovers. It was a big Western. Beautiful music, yeah. Yeah, and, and I was the third trumpet. I was able to watch for my very first big session like that with someone like Jerry um, and watch from a safe distance because the worst case is like, you you know, well, where's the trumpet sit? You get there the first day, well, see that chair up next to the conductor? That would be your worst nightmare. <laughs> if, you're not, if, you're not, if you're a jazz musician and not a classical musician and vice versa, you know what I mean? So you learn to... Uh, Realize what the, what the best, the benefits and the talents of the people sitting next to you, because why should I struggle on a jazz thing if there's a, one of the greatest jazz players sitting two chairs down from me? You pass, the, pass it to him, let's get this done so we can all go home or get in tune and go to the next job. changed throughout the years i mean the, the, was there more uh a more collegial atmosphere in, in the earlier years than yes later there on? was yes there was it, just an example of that for instance say yuan and manny klein they were friends they worked together a lot and well there that was the era of the studio staff orchestras too because they worked together so much in the same place all the time fox mgm uh warners those those were all and they that was only for nine years they had that staff orchestras that went out in the, in, during the 50s. Started in the late 40s, went to the middle 50s. So, yeah, and that's when, uh, yeah, there were many, many people. Even Rafael Mendez was at MGM for 10 years, 1939 to 49. He was the greatest, probably the virtuoso of the trumpet of all time. Yeah, I was, I was talking about this, uh, you know, the, the, that unique atmosphere uh, with, with David Newman. Uh, last year, I did a conversation with him as well about yeah. John and, and especially his formation years. Uh, at Fox and and Fox was really a unique environment because you had incredible pool of talented people, not just you know composers but arrangers, orchestrators, and then musicians working in the orchestra, and also the fact that a lot of those people were European immigrants. Yes, they were. Okay, and yeah, who came in the U.S. and started playing in uh, Hollywood orchestras. So how much the tradition of the European music was brought to Hollywood and how much important was that uh, according to you? Well, I think because I, I miss most of them because it was a little earlier than I was around. You know, but but uh, I even worked with Bernard Herman on his very last week. The week he died on Taxi Driver. He was the, really the one that 
probably stuck out sort of the most. But, you know, there was a lot of them I could I could go through. You saw the list. Rosha, Miklos Rosa. I worked with him, too, actually. Oh, wow. A couple, couple of them, but also Larry Rosenthal, Leonard Rosenman, um, Alex North. What a beautiful man he was. And I worked on 74 to 87. Uh, I did about eight or nine pictures with him. He was a wonderful, wonderful composer. Nice, nice man. I did the death of a salesman with him. The the one that Dustin Dustin Hoffman was in. It was a play, and it turned into a TV movie. And he and Dustin was there, so he came over to me, and I had a an old horn with some of the lacquers off. He said, "How old was that horn?" There? Well, you know, we had a long conversation, and I said, "Marathon man, we did it here in this room at Paramount M. Marathon man, he said, is it safe? Is it safe?" <laughs> Olivia, he said he just went on and on about it. And so long conversations with people like that. It was only six people in the band, so we could talk, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you also did a lot of work with uh, James Newton Howard. Oh, yeah. Well, that's the most, actually. I think there's 59 scores. I did more with him than any other other composers so far. The list is much longer. Since 1988 only, actually, I've done. He, he does so many scores. I'm in touch with him. I, I, you know, we had we emailed back and forth a couple of times. But, He's great, very, very talented guy. Um, and but he's moved on to, you know, I mean, if, if you're old like me and you never dye your hair and, uh, you know, the thing is, as the jobs get thinner, see, over the years, I'm not, not working like seven days a week anymore. You yeah. know, and it's less, it's less. Well, so that means if you don't practice all the rest of the time, you're not going to really be as good as you could be. So that's part of it. Plus, people glance over. They don't want to see a guy with all gray hair. <laughs> It just doesn't yeah. it doesn't appeal to some people certain certain segment. Now some people look at it and say, okay, there maybe there's some wisdom or experience there, you know, instead of saying, God, look at that guy's too old. I I can only talk about what I used to do at this yeah. point. I don't like that, but I'm still a, a, a force in music and I'm still creating and uh and playing. And the, the last thing I did, actually I wrote the few we have a thing running with Martin Luther King the third, the son of Dr. King, is doing a, a video. It's on NBC, it's running all the time. It, it's uh he getting and his father giving speeches in the UN in the big room in the UN and so um, uh, that's and I, I, I co-wrote the score and you can hear my trumpet in it but that's the only thing I've done and that was about six months ago so that's, that's uh, great to know I, I do my, I have my own studio that's this is where the recording was right in this garage that's into a studio that's where I recorded the Tchaikovsky violin concerto if you all LA musicians whoever was available that day they came over it was a limited pressing uh, thing, but I did it, and I had a great producer, and I was able to play that stuff. And the second album has all violin music on it, too, but only piano.
was very very nice to hear you playing in the in that specific environment in that the creative arrangement you know bringing the yeah. violin parts to trumpets you know it's, it's quite easy, even challenging for for many well, it's different you know you yeah. notice that you don't hear a lot of breathing in it because hey he wrote for a violin so yeah. I, i just think look at it like if if tchaikovsky had written that in 1878 For a trumpet player, he would have had to breathe. So there's musical phrases that need to be done there, but you know you have to do it in sections because you have to breathe. And, uh, so that that's a simple thing. People say, "Well, yeah, you. If I would have done it, I would have done it." Well, go ahead, you try it. You you do the whole thing in one piece and see it. But it helps to have your own studio. About 10 minutes ago, I had a double bypass operation, heart, heart oh, surgery. Wow. Yeah, oh, wow. and, I, and I'm recovering. I've lost 43 pounds already uh, in that 10 months, uh, and I'm doing great. <laughs> you know, so I got I got to do it because my mom, um, who's Irish, like I, I'm an Irish citizen also. You know, and my mom was born in D Dublin. She she died at 102, uh, but because she fell, and that's all. Because all I have those genes, yeah. so I'm going to be playing uh, many many concertos. I plan on, even though no one else thinks so, I'm going to be doing it. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> no, very glad to know that you're feeling great and you know you have also longevity genes in your blood so that's yes. good to know oh i want to do it for a long time I've, i just you know 70 years is not enough playing the trumpet i need to do it longer i mean you work with the, with the cream of the crop we can say of the composers of the people and i've been blessed uh, yeah and so do you think those days are basically over in the sense that now film music or music for for media in general films and television and so on uh, is well, a com completely different environment than it was. I just think now the biggest issue is uh, technology's kicked our butt on this some stuff here um, because they're able to record people in Bratislava, uh, Budapest, uh, all the Eastern Bloc countries, and they, it's very cheap. That's what that's what happens. That's the only thing that's changed things here a lot because a music editor comes over to his house and, and he's downloading tracks. You know, each cue, okay, it might take eight to ten hours to download. Then he does a quick mix. Then this guy comes at 6 p.m. And, and he says, hey, you got those things ready? Well, they take a long time to download. I only have a few of them. Now. And they're putting them in. These people are making $75 U.S. equivalent for a three-hour session. Of course, they're going to do it. They're going to do that, you know, and that's that's going on with several of the engineers. A guy up in Santa Barbara is also doing it. So uh, we're done here. Except for John Williams bringing these big orchestras back and doing the Disney stuff and the Star and the Star Wars and stuff, um, overall it's a bad business for people. The composers, especially, they're really suffering. Bruce Broughton is among the top five of all time. He's been my friend. He wrote, I commissioned a couple pieces from him too. Oh, we did a lot of movies. Yeah, Silverado. You did Silverado with him. Yeah, I was. Yeah, Silverado. That was his big. That was a big advancement for him. Yeah, and I remember him saying, "Well, we had uh, three trumpets." We had two guy, a guy from two guys from the Philharmonic, and myself. And and Bruce actually said, you know, I don't know who's going to be my first trumpet. Guys, why don't you switch off? Uh, each one plays different cues. So at the end of it, I won. Said I, I like Malcolm's playing better, and he's he's everything I use. We did a lot of things together, and um, you know, I haven't seen him for a while, but you know, he's been over here at my studio when we did some mixing and stuff on on some of the pieces he wrote for me. Yeah, I'd love actually to talk with him too, because even though. I mean, he never did anything together with John, but I think he pertains to a generation of, of composers who grew up in a kind of similar environment. In exactly. Sense. He did his first steps on television. Exactly, and, and he's, a, he's a pen on paper composer. Exactly. Just exactly. like John, and just like the old days, and just like he, that's the way he learned his craft. Over at CBS, with, we did uh, 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 Hawaii Five-0, uh, and we did Streets of San Francisco, and, and all those things. Yeah, and so. Um, Yeah, he cut his teeth on those shows, on the CBS shows, Hawaii Five-0, Gunsmoke, all those things. And he learned that craft. And, and see, so, so many of them are what we call drag-and-drop composers in Pro Tools. You know, they're just, you know, they're just putting things together in pieces on a computer screen. We're talking about people that, like, and, and I, it's a dying breed or a dead breed already. I mean, hardly anyone does that anymore. Yeah, nobody is safe for these really few guys that we can count on the fingers off of one hand. I mean, who are still around. I mean, and, that, and John that's, always does. John's always pen on paper. He's not doing computer stuff. Yeah, yeah. And, and he still writes, you know, for, of course, nowadays he writes only for the, these big projects for, for yep. Disney. He has, you know, high end commissions from Anne Sophie Mutter or other very top end classical players. But he's actually still, I think, in the kitchen in, the, in some way yeah. because he likes to experiment things, you know. He, yes, he does. He, yeah, that's true. 
Well, you know, one of the nicest things he ever wrote was that, I'm trying to remember the name, it's a, it's a series, that, it's the main title of uh, Great Performances, it's called. Da, ba, 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 ba. And it's not, it's sort of like E.T. a little bit, but it's got these long intervals. We did that over at UCLA, right in Royce Hall. They put a stage over the chairs, and we were in the big, big room there. But in that room is where I met Aaron Copeland, and and get, and spent time in in the office in the green room with him, talking about Quiet City and how to approach it. We played it. We, it was an all Copeland concert, and I, I played. It was 1974. He autographed it. And he said to Malcolm McNabb, who plays trumpet, like very few, is what he said. So that's our Aaron Copeland. Quite a memory, I think. Yeah, it is, but we can't get the recordings for it. We did it. One of the greatest English horn players in the world actually did that Quiet City with me, with Copeland, and he's now he just died. He's a lot of a lot of stuff. A couple of years ago, he died. But anyhow, um, it's the big parade at this point. You know, a lot of people, a lot of friends. Go, but I'm hanging in there. I'd like to ask you, you know, as a closing, probably of our conversation, uh, if you have any. Uh, maybe more dearest mem dearest memories or a special recollection of your work with John Williams. Is there something particularly that sticks with you over the years about your work well, with I, him? I remember one time that it was sort of, it sticks in my memory as a good good moment. Well, I we were working with John over at Sony, the old MGM. And um, at the same time, there was a, a, a thing, a, a, a luncheon going on someplace in town uh, for Lloyd Olliate, one of the older trombone players, you know, and, and, and um, one other guy, I can't remember who. But anyway, they, they hooked it up because Steven Spielberg had put up, uh, he had a telecom. He had a truck outside with a satellite. And, and they, he could actually, when we, he did Schindler's List, we were doing Jurassic Park, and he was doing Schindler's List in Europe. And, and through those, that kind of thing, you could listen to the dailies, listen to all this, the uh, scores, the, the uh, cues that came up, you know. Yeah, so anyway, at that time, John was going to go live to that luncheon with the brass section playing. I can't remember what it was. He wrote a piece for us, and uh, he, he turned it because he was making the announcement to the people at the luncheon. He was saying, we're over here at Sony. We're recording, and uh, we're going to have the brass section led, uh, led by Malcolm McNabb. You know, and I thought, yeah, that was nice. I like that. You know, he put my name in it, and then we played, and then played for the people at the luncheon, and it went, you know, because it's – I think it probably cost forty thousand a day to have that truck there or something, you know. <laughs> and uh, but Stephen let him let him use it for this, so it was sort of cool. So I mean, I, I've been blessed, really. When you think, when I think about, it, I got so many memories. That's all you have now, you know, at this point. But so many good people, and it, right now it's the big parade because you know people in my uh, people that are in my same age group, you know, it's but, but your 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 work and your artistry will live on. I mean, many of the movies you played in will be watched and remembered over and over for the coming years and centuries. I only have my name on about three of them, you know, and out of two thousand. But but you know what what it matters and I think the future 
historians or people who will be interested in maybe the kind of work I'm doing now, even for people 50 years from now, maybe they will be interested. And I'm doing this project basically for this reason, to, to leave a trace about people. That's great. That's great. That's exactly right. What you're doing is what will make that happen. You're going to bring this inside information when people are fascinated with what the process was and everything like that. You're bringing some information from the people who are actually there, part of the, you know, cogs in the wheel. So, Malcolm, uh, I really want to thank you about your time with me and thank you for sharing so much of your memories and stories uh, about your work with John Williams and all the other greats we mentioned throughout our conversation. Yeah, and I must say this is a great, a valuable project and I'm glad you're doing it. I'm really glad that people are, are putting these things together. I'm a, I'm a history buff and I like, the, I like the idea of what happened and you know the people first person narratives when someone was actually there it means so much more and they're telling their story whether it's like in, in at new york when the bombings happened and all that stuff or any experience that you lived with you know that's the most that's the most interesting people will tune in right away no matter what the subject is if it's coming from someone's who lived it i admire you for that and i think it's great i, I think you it's really needed that you do this sort of thing and, and uh, a lot of people are going to be very happy Thank you, Malcolm. Stay well, stay safe, and let's talk soon. Okay, my friend. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks to Malcolm McNabb for his kindness and generosity. Visit thelegacyofjohnwilliams.com for more articles and information. Thank you for listening. Until the next episode of the Legacy of John Williams podcast. Yeah.